the four-hour work week was quite enticing. I don't think it's quite worked out that way. I'm probably working um, as much as ever, but that's sort of out of choice. My name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to use the scientific method to come up with a business idea, how to drive traffic to a pre-order page, and how to build up excitement for a new product release. Before our show, I wanted to chat about Shopify Ping. It's a free live chat app for Android or iOS devices and it even works on iPads. Did you know that shoppers who use live chats are almost three times more likely to complete their purchase? With Shopify Ping, you can share products, exclusive discount codes, and help customers make purchases instantly. For more information, visit shopify.com slash chat. Today, I'm joined by Stefan Garrick from King Kong Apparel. King Kong Apparel are the makers of serious high-quality bags and backpacks for serious athletes and was started in 2011 and based on Melbourne, Australia and did $1.5 million in sales last year. Welcome, Stefan. Hi, Felix. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. Yeah, so your journey in all of this began where I think a lot of people uh, begin, which is uh, reading a very, very important book that, that seems to uh, have uh, infiltrated lots of uh, entrepreneurs out there. So tell us about this book that you read and where you where were you at in your life that kind of sparked this decision inside you to to uh, try try to start your own business? Yeah, absolutely. So the book, as a lot of you will have heard, is called The 4-Hour Workweek. Uh, by Tim Ferriss, which I really enjoyed. I thought it was really tangible advice for starting a business. Uh, at, I started King Kong Apparel back in 2011, so I'd just finished um, some pretty serious study. I was a, I was a research scientist, and, my, and I guess I needed a new project, and I read the, this book. I had just started out in CrossFit, and I thought, you know, why not make a, a bag for CrossFitters? Um, there was nothing out there that sort of met the needs of of crossfitters in terms of all the gear we were taking every day and i thought well i can i can jump on alibaba um make some samples and and, and basically see where it goes uh just play around with a little bit of a side hustle and that was it was really it was really a a simple start i guess uh to the business yeah, so I think when people read that book, there's lots of lessons in there and I think can be applied to not even entrepreneurs, but anyone that just wants to have a four-hour work week. Um, but in your in your example, what from that book it, did you resonate with the most? What about that book made you think about or made you rather want to start a business? Well, I guess, I guess the title itself, The 4-Hour Work Week, was quite enticing. Um, I don't think it's quite worked out that way. I'm probably working um, as much as ever, but that's sort of out of mm-hmm. choice. Uh, I think what really resonated for me uh, was 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 the tangible, tangible advice. It was talking about how to do product sourcing, how to set up a very simple website to test the idea, um, and how to how to uh, get the logistics running so that we can deliver to people, um, and then some advertising. So it's really a very much a set out uh, structure for starting a side hustle or a business. Very clear steps. Whereas a lot of other books I had read before was all sort of theoretical advice that um, didn't tell you exactly what to do, which which I really appreciated in that book. Got it. So immediately you looked at creating apparel and bags for CrossFitters, or were there other ideas that you were entertaining inside your head? Not really. It was the bags somehow stuck out, uh, and we went. I, I went straight to bags. I, uh, I 
threw a few designs on PowerPoint um, of bags that I liked, how I liked them changed. Uh, I think I sourced products from three factories in China through Alibaba and then iterated the best one a couple of times before before going all in and, and placing an order. So I like this. I think um, I think you're, you said you're a research scientist, so it sounds like you have some uh, like a method, methodical approach to designing a product. So walk us through this. I think this is important because I think a lot of times when you are more of a creative type of entrepreneur, you want to kind of invent something, you sit inside, a lot of people sit in silence by themselves and just kind of do thought experiments. But you went out first, it sounded like, to see what was out there that can be improved upon. So tell us about, first of all, why did you do that? And then what was the process behind uh, kind of getting the very first, uh, it, no, I wouldn't say iterations, but the very first inklings of what the the, the, the product will look like? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I was a, a, a muscle disease scientist. So the scientific method was like make a hypothesis, figure out how to test it, um, test it, and then see what the results are. And that's very much the same process, I think, for developing a new product or a new business idea. You come up with, with the idea. You figure out how, how am I going to test this idea? You, you sort of test it and then you see if it was successful or not. And I guess, um, from my point of view, the, f- the first thing I did was, uh, well, I've been in CrossFit and we needed some bags. So I thought, um, what bags do I like out there? I'm not a product designer. I can't draw at all. So I had to base my designs on what was already out there, especially at this stage, which was very early on. Um, and so the process was I found, four or five bags that I really like different aspects of. I basically took sort of photos of those, put them in a PowerPoint presentation that was very clear and easy to understand for people um, whose English wasn't wasn't as 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 good as mine. Um, and that was the Chinese factory owners who are very skilled at making bags. And so we we went back and forth a few times on on some designs uh, and then they basically made a product. And I, I should say um, I went on to Alibaba.com, which is a massive product sourcing place, looked for um, people who had made military spec, very high-end uh, nylon bags before, and I, I contacted those factories. Um, and so we sort of went back and forth with a few emails. This is the sort of bags I like I like to see. This is the product, uh, the materials we want to use, and uh, can can you make me a sample before we place a bulk order? And, and we had some samples sent over and they weren't particularly good at the time, um, and that's why we, we needed to iterate a few times, and that's sort of the, the process to getting towards the first sellable um, product that we had. Got it. Okay, so when you, you you said you reached out to how many manufacturers at first? Three. Three, three, three okay. factories. So three three factories. What, what were you looking at to gauge which one you would move forward with? I guess there's a few things. Responsiveness um, was the first one. If we if we want to build a long term relationship with someone who we can trust, we need to be able to get quick responses. We need to someone who's willing to take the time with a smaller or very small um, player. I guess you could say we had no we had no plans on ordering thousands of bags. The the initial order was was 500 units, which was already a massive stretch. Um, so that was one thing. And then uh, obviously quality uh, in the samples. It's pretty hard to see the quality without actually receiving the sample. So we had the samples sent over. Um, and then uh, they actually had to take a few liberties with the design because of how limited my design ability was. So they had they used their sort of sample masters and their, their very skillful um, machinists to 
sort of craft my design into something that actually was looking like a like a designed bag rather than something where there's pockets popped on from the sides and just meshed together. Mm, okay, so you had some ideas on changes that you wanted to make. You had some kind of base existing products that you wanted to work off of. So you, it's not like you had some forethought into at least uh, using uh, these these pictures and this PowerPoint put together to communicate it. Looking back on it, are there any lessons learned on how to either better communicate the change? Let's say you are someone wants to do the same thing as you, start off with existing products already out there and then improve upon them. Any thoughts on how the any any rather any tips on how they can make sure they communicate their vision better um yeah i think uh i think get a friend who can sketch a little bit i mean it's there's a lot of people who can do a little bit of drawing i'm not one of them um these days i have a a bag designer uh who works with us um but even you know any friend who can actually sketch something from scratch i think is much more uh communicative than a couple of photos and tacking things on i think it would be a a much better way to do it just get a friend to help you sketch something so that you can communicate that vision more clearly and more originally as well i think that's sort of the key um in that in that piece got it so now you have you know you have a bunch of uh, products in in your catalog but when you first started can you describe your idea behind uh, a bag like you said that the bags out there they were not um, catered towards your demographic crossfitters can you explain more about what changes you wanted to place on the existing bags to make it more fit better for 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 athletes and crossfitters yeah absolutely so one of the one of the things that crossfitters now and back back then during the earlier days needed was multiple pairs of shoes for you know olympic weightlifting for running for box jumps and rope climbs and things like that so i wanted multiple shoe pockets i wanted separated compartments where um the the shoes or the you know dirty clothes towels can be separated from the clean clothes um and then i also wanted a numerous accessory pockets because we have uh wrist wraps, knee sleeves, um, tape, all sorts of different accessories that at the time were just getting thrown into a a major pocket in a duffel. Um, And I think there's plenty of bags that probably fulfill that now, but back nine years ago or so, the really the only sort of gym or sports bags available were your your big brands, Nike, um, Adidas, maybe Under Armour as well, which was sort of a just a carry-all duffel where everything got thrown in the middle. There was not much separation um, in there. And so I think that's sort of what I wanted. And the other th- part of that as well was um, fortuitously CrossFit started off as a bit of a counterculture. So the idea wasn't to buy from the big brands. People weren't going to the CrossFit gyms because um, they were similar to Globo gyms. They were small businesses, so they were really supportive of of that as well. So I guess I saw that as an opportunity. Got it. Okay, so now you got the first samples uh, from the the factories that you're working with. How many iterations did you have to go through after that before you had something that you were ready and confident to go to market with? And what were the changes along the way? I wouldn't say. I think it was. I think it was three iterations from the one factory before I took something to market or before I photographed it and had it ready. Um, Looking back, I probably wasn't particularly confident at the time either. I certainly didn't. um, I think one of the other parts I should say of the four-hour work week was, which was highly discussed, was bring it to market and market test it as quickly as possible. There's no, you're never going to get to a perfect product. It's much better to 
have a product that's good enough to launch so you can learn all these other parts of running a business and iterate the product from there. Um, so I certainly wasn't confident. And looking back, it was a, it was a really poor quality bag in terms of the materials. Um, I think the design was actually pretty good. But but um, so so one of some of the changes I made was the material changes, a few pocket structures. It was really superficial things just to make it a bit more functional, a bit more aesthetically pleasing. Um, and then uh, and then I, I set up with the help of a friend, a one page website, which had some product photography um, and a uh, and a pre-order now button just to sort of market test it before we, we ordered um, the first batch. Got it. Okay. So yeah, let's talk about this. So you mentioned the scientific method, the four hour work week, both taught you to start testing your hypothesis, uh, to market test that you put up a page with a pre-order button. Did you have photos of like the finished product or at least the, the version that you would, uh, send to, send to get your, send to a production run at that time? That's right. Yeah. I had, I had, well, I guess what I would call now call a pre-production sample. So that's the sample, uh, that is, what the uh, what the factory is going to base the uh, the entire production on, um, and I had a, a, another friend who did a bit of photography um, and had a studio, so I asked her to take some photos. So we had five or six photos of the bag in various stages of um, packing and things like that, and we, we threw those up. Uh, and yeah, that was what the customers were going to get. We wrote a bit of copy about CrossFit and elite bags and. Um, the 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 function and the and the toughness uh and jumped in the deep end i guess you could say mm-hmm. uh, how much were the pre-orders how much were you charging at that time it was 89.95 uh at the time um i'm pretty sure that was the price mm-hmm. yes yeah, it's, it's, it's gone up a fair bit from there and that was for they were cotton canvas actually um they weren't the same materials we're using now uh and mm-hmm. so yeah, and uh, how many? Do you remember how many you sold at that point? By the time you realized, like, okay, this is this test has passed. Let's move on to the next stage and and get a production run. I I, I don't remember exactly. It must have been around fifty or eighty. I remember putting it up, uh, putting up the the site, and then driving a little bit of traffic to it, which we can sort of talk about as well. Um, and I remember, I think it was two I got two pre-orders on the first day, maybe three, and I was pretty excited by that, um, considering that they weren't friends or anyone that I knew. Um, so uh, I think I probably jumped and made that first order of 500 a little earlier than I should have, um, with only maybe 50 pre-orders or so. Um, but it was it was fairly clear that people were purchasing, so I, I guess I was a bit mm-hmm. naive and just just went for it. Yeah, definitely want to talk about how to get traffic to a pre-order page in a second. Uh, but, but can you talk a little bit more about the language? I think when someone thinks about putting up a pre-order page, there's, there's some kind of anxiety around selling something, getting people to pay for something that doesn't exist exactly yet. So how did you kind of message that to your prospective customers when they land on this page? It was for pre-order. How did you do the copy in a way where you actually would get pre-orders, but then also make sure that they knew that it was pre-orders, the product does not exist yet. How did you do that? It was a, a WordPress site, one page that was built by a friend. And so I guess what we had was we had uh, we had a carousel of photos, which I think is um, not so much liked anymore. It's a, a single banner, but we had a carousel of maybe four or five photos of the bag showing different parts of it. And then we um, we wrote, I think the, the copy itself was something along the lines of um, uh, pre-order now 
to be one of the first to get uh, King, uh, this uh, King Kong duffel delivery. I think it was delivery in eight to ten weeks uh, pre-order here. So it wasn't it wasn't particularly advanced or, or or fancy copy. It was very much matter of fact, which was I guess the scientific way for me at that t- at that stage. Um, and yeah, I mean the, the the messaging definitely was very clear in that it was going to take eight to ten weeks to arrive. And and the idea was you could pre-order now. You could put your money down um, and you would get one of the first bags. So I guess there was. A little bit of that FOMO scarcity happening, um, but it was it wasn't particularly sophisticated at that time, and nor, and nor did it need to be. Um, people were very very accommodating, knowing that this was a new brand, and were more than happy to um to help out and understand that situation. I think, and I think things are maybe they've advanced a little bit, you know, with Kickstarter and things like that, where people are expecting. Um, a better product from day one, but I also think that, that people are, are quite um, accommodating understanding of new businesses and, and really like to support um, entrepreneurs. I guess that's sort of why Kickstarter's done incredibly well um, and why it continues to do so. Yeah, I think also having photography, like photographs of the the product, in it helps helps a ton. You know, if you have no photos, it's like way more suspicious to a lot of potential customers. And if you have just mockups, also the same thing. But you have a physical product that exists in the real world, people are less, um, I guess, uh, hesitant to 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 do a pre order. Now, you mentioned that you drove some traffic to this pre order page. Tell us about that. How did you get get the the initial customers check out the pre-order page it was it was all initially facebook um ads that were incredibly cheap to run nine years ago in hindsight probably should have run a lot more um but that was that was the way we had we had one of the photos in the ads and it said um i think it said crossfit gym duffel or it said um world's toughest duffel or something along those lines sent a little bit of traffic there it was really just to see what our conversion rate was looking like and whether or not people would buy. It was very much a small test. I think we only spent 20 or $30 at the time to send some traffic there. And at that stage, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think it was something like 12 or 15 cents per click or per, per visitor. It was, it was really quite low. Um, so we were able to prove that, uh, that people were purchasing and that we could, that we could, um, continue that sort of advertising and and have a business i guess awesome so, okay so you got the 50 pre-orders that in your head validated enough to jump jump forward and you said looking back in hindsight probably too early but hey it all panned out to, to be the best yeah, in, this, exactly. in this case <laughs> so that first pre that first the production run how long did it take for you to get the 500 bags uh it took uh yeah it took two months uh to have the production run complete so uh, when I jumped in, I wired um, my life savings sort of, which was which was sort of about ten, eleven thousand uh, dollars across to a factory. I, actually, it was thirty percent on on um, deposit, and then the balance on the the finished product. And so, um, yeah, eight weeks they were sitting in China, and then I had to figure out how to send it to send it to people, uh, which. Which I think was probably one of the the early sort of problems or struggles was was fulfillment because I never thought what locality or what jurisdictions or what geographies I should be selling to. So it was it was selling worldwide straight away. Um, the vast majority of orders were in the US, but I needed to fulfill worldwide. So um, I organised a fulfillment warehouse in China to start shipping those products directly um, to customers. Uh, 
and and that was sort of so the customers I guess got it they got it pretty much 10 weeks afterwards which was which was good um that's sort of what we promised Got it. Okay. So then once you had those 450 other, actually, did you keep the pre-orders page live while you were getting this production run going? Like how many extra inventory did you have by the time the production run was done that you now had to find new ways to sell? I think I think by the time the production run was, was done, I, I probably still had 400 to sell. Uh, I don't think we didn't push that hard. I, I wasn't necessarily, I was still very early in the game and didn't know how they were going to be received once customers got the products. Were they were the were all 500 products going to be the same quality as our pre-production sample? Um, was I going to have quality? You know, quality issues seems to be the first thing people say whenever you source product from um, from Asia, which I uh, completely disagree with. I think you get exactly what you pay for. Uh, I've never had any issues um, dealing with factories over in in China or or elsewhere. I've been so so, mm-hmm. but at that time I wasn't aware of that, um, and so I didn't really push particularly hard for more pre-orders um, during production. I, I sort of figured it can be a slow burn. I don't need to I don't need to make money off this straight away. I need to just sort of see what I'm doing, understand what I'm doing, and and, and sort of um get a, get an understanding of how easy it is to deliver to people, and and I guess get some actual customer reviews. God, right. Okay, so you uh, now have 400 products in inventory. What were the next steps to start getting those sold? Well, we, we continued to run some Facebook ads. Uh, I think one thing that worked really well for us was there are a lot of smaller competitions, uh, CrossFit competitions, intra-gym competitions uh, all over the States and, and elsewhere, um, and we started supporting those with prizes for the the top male and female athletes during these competitions, um, and I think that was a real success for us because it meant that the best athletes in the various gyms had a King Kong bag. Um, I guess you know everyone looks up to the best athletes and and sees what sees what they're doing, and I think that really enabled us to get a bit of a foothold as the bag for CrossFit. Um, obviously, it didn't happen that quickly, but we we probably supported. Uh, maybe 30 or 50 competitions in the first six months um, with with um with product. So I, I guess we used a quite a quite a good chunk of that first order um, as as that sort of marketing exercise. Mm, okay, so you mentioned you give out these prizes for competitions. Was that something easy to get into? Was it easy to use your or have your prize be given away at a competition? Yeah, absolutely. People people are. Um, competition organizers, especially small comps, which is, you know, within the gym or within a few gyms in the local area. Um, they're not well resourced. Uh, they're always looking for, for prizes for their, for their competitors. Um, and so absolutely we reached, they reached out to us and we reached out to them and, um, I never had anyone say, no, thanks. We don't want these prizes. Um, they were very, more than happy to, um, to accept those and give them mm. away and, and give King Kong a bit of a, um, a bit of advertising and a plug during the um, during the competition. Mm-hmm, for sure. Now, is that is this a strategy that you're still using? Absolutely. Yeah, it is. Um, we've used a very similar strategy recently with with um, during during the last few months. It's been reasonably difficult with um, most gyms in America closed. Um, I think I think ninety six percent of CrossFit gyms were closed for April. Um, and so one of the things we've we've been doing during this time is is providing 
bags as prizes for gyms to use for their online workout. So a lot of them are using Facebook, mm-hmm. um, Zoom, some of these online platforms to run their their are uh, their classes. And so one of the we've given a lot of bags away as prizes for the most engaged member or the most positive member or whatever they sort of want to use it for, but still providing prizes and and letting us um, be part of the community still in that way. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Yeah. So so when you're starting out, when you have a a lower marketing budget, or even today when you have so many things going on, how do you measure success of these strategies so that you know that it's worthwhile to reinvest again in giving prizes away at one competition or maybe another competition you've done in the past doesn't seem to actually pan out to any sales. How do you, do you measure that? How do you measure it if you do? Um, We we do, uh, a lot of the time we provide um, prizes plus gift cards plus, you know, coupon code for also, so that the the winners might get a prize. second and third place on the podium might get a, 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 um, a gift card or a coupon. And then, and then every one at the competition competitors, volunteers and uh, spectators would have a coupon code specific to that competition. So there's a little element of measuring there. Um, and my opinion on that one is, you know, if it can break even, that's a, a big win because um, we've covered our costs and everything else is marketing upside for the future. I completely agree that it's not as clear as um, Facebook ads, Google ads, Instagram, where you can measure the the ROAS directly on a per dollar basis. X dollars has provided X dollars in revenue. Um, But I I think some of that offline marketing at the the local level, really grassroots level, um, is, is valuable even though it is a lot harder to measure. And, and yeah, I couldn't tell you exactly the ROI, but I do believe, especially in the early days, it, it had a it had a big impact for us. Right. I mean, I think those coupon codes make a lot of sense to tie back if you want to get into analytics. But I think when you're smaller too, when when these these uh, competitions that you're, you're doing are more kind of sporadic, you can at least measure uptick in geographies where all of a sudden there's purchases coming out of the same city where a competition was at. Uh, but when you're everywhere, it's much, much harder to, to narrow that down. So let's talk about the logistics of doing something like this, because if you, whether you're in CrossFit or not, whatever industry you're in, there's probably some kind of events, some kind of competition maybe that you can use your prize as a giveaway. So talk to us about how to how, to, how the logistics of it all works out between finding a, a, a organization to, to work with. We'll start there. Well, for, from, from my point of view, it was uh, there's, there's events all over the place. You, you, you can plug in. Yeah, most um, demographics have groups on Facebook that you can be a part of um, that, you, that lets you understand what's going on in that group. So yeah, in CrossFit, for example, there's, there's, um, there's like competition pages on Facebook that you can be part of and so you can figure out who's providing, who's doing competitions, um, reach out to them via their gym, I mean their gym website or or whatever has their contact details and so you just introduce yourself. Hi, Stefan from King Kong Apparel. would love to support your upcoming event um, with with a, a couple of bags. We make, you know, the world's toughest gym bags and backpacks and meal prep bags. Um, we'd love to you know, provide one for the the male and female winner of your upcoming competition, and and almost everyone will come back saying, you know, thanks so much. Um, we'll be more than happy to to advertise you guys on the day. Um, yeah, the the winners will absolutely love it. And then we can also go back and forth and maybe get some um 
some customer generated content there, which would be, you know, photos of the winners with their prizes, um, maybe a little bit of a, a quote or a review of that as well. And then that relationship is there for a long, long time. Um, they will be talking about those bags. They'll be incredibly happy to have received them. Um, and I think that's possible in just about every, um, uh, in every little sport or niche that you're, that you're looking at. Yep, makes sense. Now, you, how many of these are you doing now? I guess maybe not this year, but like the previous years, how many competitions are you sponsoring? Uh, we probably sponsor yeah, two a week or so. Um, so we probably sponsor 100 a year, um, give or take. Okay, okay so not, not, not unmanageable if it's a, a, you know, a important endeavor for you, which obviously seems like it's paying off. So once you once you started doing these competitions, were there anything else that you're doing, maybe online even, that started to drive traffic to your your, your store, especially early on? We did uh, send product for reviews with a few with a few different people. So um, there were some fitness magazines online, smaller ones, where we sent product or we reached out to them and told them what we were doing and sent a product for review. Um, so we probably had in the early Couple of first couple of years, we maybe had six or ten different uh, articles reviewing the product, talking about what it is, and that sort of started to drive a trickle a trickle of traffic um, from each one, and so consistently increasing the traffic year on year. Um, and I think that's that's probably a, a really good approach. Um, these online articles, you know, reviews. Um, there's maybe uh, gym bag roundups that we've been part of. Uh, road trip essentials. Most recently, we had an article in Forbes that was um, talking about road trip essentials, and one of our backpacks was was chosen there. So I think um, constantly reaching out to people who can review it, and those articles stay um, sort of in the in the online space forever, and can cont- continuously drive small amounts of traffic. And if you get more and more of those, you, you start to you start to build up the traffic levels, um, and if you can main, maintain the conversion rates with a with a nice website, you start to grow and, and make more and more sales, and they sort of build on each other, uh, build on themselves. I think. Yeah. So tell us more about this. You got it into reviews. You got your product reviewed from 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 a website. What was it? What was the? How did you pitch them to review your product? Was it something that was easy to do, or did you have to like? How, I guess how did you get your product in front of them to to for review? It was it was a very simple pitch. It was this is a new product um, that we've just brought out. We think it would be perfect for your CrossFit audience. We've also done it for powerlifting, um, for now a lot more MMA and, and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Um, we think this product would be perfect, and your audience will like it. Um, we'd love to send you one if you like it. You know, um, do a review if you don't like it. Um, you know that's fine too, uh, and and we're very confident in the in the products now. So the more people we can get it to, um, in that respect, the better. And 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 I think most people who accept a product like that are more than willing to do a review. And and we're not talking about Mashable or the New York Times. These are these are uh, one step up from you know a small one person blog. Um, and so you know it, it's it's sort of grassroots again. It's not it's not huge. Um, audiences, but it's it's smaller audiences that that all add up to to significant traffic. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing from you. Like you're kind of doing a lot of kind of grassroots level marketing, not like huge influencers, not huge competitions, but starting off with smaller guys and like doing a bunch of them. Have you tried anything that was like much much larger? I guess much larger uh, campaigns and 
did you get did it work did it not work like what, any any experience there yeah um it's it's taken us a, a long time to to do some larger things i mean most of it's budget related as you can as you can probably imagine we've got a very small team um here uh one of the one of the the fun stories was um As we started off in CrossFit, but we've been expanding into um, into other functional fitness demographics, um, powerlifting, strongman, uh, MMA, as I sort of mentioned. And one of the we thought one of the perfect um, ambassadors for us would be uh, Huff Thor Bjornsson, also known as Thor, um, mm-hmm. who was uh, on Game of Thrones. Uh, As um as the as the enormous guy I can't remember uh, the mountain on Game of Thrones yeah I think he's I think he's about six foot six he weighs you know close to four hundred pounds um and so he's he's well known in that space but he's actually also won the world's strongest man competition um and the Arnold Classic on numerous occasions in the in the strongman division so we thought what better what better what what better person to um to advertise or to to be a, the face of the world's toughest bags or the world's strongest bags or the world's strongest man. So we reached out to him um, via email and just sort of asked if he had a bag sponsor and if he would like to sort of talk, discuss it. Um, and four, and a, four years and two weeks later, we received an email response saying, yes, I'd like to talk <laughs> about it. Um, so I think it te- that sort of teaches a few lessons. I think it's the power of um, staying in the game half the battle is staying alive for long enough to take advantage of opportunities um and so uh for four years and two weeks later we we got back to him we had a bit of a, a discussion about how the the um this setup would look and we, we got him on board as a as a brand ambassador we did a photo shoot we've been advertising specific bags we're actually um developing a bag together for for strongman use as well so um I think uh, he's he's certainly our biggest influencer. I guess you call a macro um, influencer brand ambassador, um, and that's that's been great because it's it's really opened us up to a, a new demographic. His his followers are not our traditional CrossFit demographic. They're they're strongmen, they're powerlifters, they're they're fans of Game of Thrones, um, and and I think that's that's been really really positive and that's only maybe three months old now so I think we'll probably see a lot more of the the benefits come Black Friday and later this year but we've already really seen an uptick in traffic um, and it, and in a new demographic demographic of people who are purchasing the bag so that's um I think that's been a success but it's taken mm-hmm. a long time to to sort of get to a point where we can um, I guess be confident in ourselves to approach these sort of people and also to have the budget to then make that work. Yeah, I think that's a good point about how when you do want to expand to a broader market, there is it, it does help a lot if you can have some credibility behind a brand name or a household name or maybe not a household name, but at least a, a quote-unquote famous person that is vouching for your product. I think that a lot of people that are in a broader market will look for that, you know, look for, hey, is this is there a famous person that has used this? I think that helps a lot. Now, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So when you first started, was the backpack the first product that you released, or did you release multiple products when you first launched? No. When I first launched, it was it was the the original King Kong duffel, um, which is still on our website in a, in its um, iterated form. Uh, but the sort of the bare bones are still uh, the same. It's it's a duffel bag with two shoe pockets and many compartments for all sorts of gear. 
So since then, you have um, more products. So tell us about that. How did you know what direction to expand the product line in uh, as you move as your company grew? Well, the, I guess the, the two main styles of bag is a, is, a, is a duffel bag and a backpack or a carry bag and a backpack. Um, so that was quite obvious. But then I guess we were really in, in that demographic and there were a lot of people who were you know, prepping their meals and taking them in, um, in coolers and things like that. So we thought we'd move uh, – it made sense to, to develop an insulated meal prep bag. Um, with ice, ice uh, blocks and things like that, so that we can the food can stay cool all day, and we can have our, you know, our um, our good nutrition whenever we needed it. So I guess that sort of made sense to expand into that area of of, of bags. Um, and then there was there was I guess the tote bags as well, which was for for more of our, a female demographic um, who were going to the gym they weren't necessarily taking a huge amount of gear um and then they were they were going about their their business for the rest of the day after that and needed a bag that worked for both so that's sort of the tote bag there um so i think it was really informed by our customers they they said i'd love to see you make x y and z um and if we heard that from a few different people we'd probably try to we try to implement that and try to design a prototype and and sort of get a bit of feedback as well by posting it on our social channels or via our email. Um, so I think what I'm sort of trying to say is uh, our customers guided us and they still they still are. We're really getting – we get a lot of survey responses from customers. Um, we have a, a, a bag owners-only group on Facebook, which is a private group that you can only enter once you've purchased a product and we get a lot of feedback on new products there. So um, we really listen to the customers and tell, and, and see what they – what they would like to see from us. Hmm. How early do you get them them involved? Like once you do decide to produce a, a new bag, you enter, you start designing it. When do you start showing them and getting feedback from from your customers? Our, our really sort of our VIPs or the customers who really engage strongly. We, as soon as we've got a sketch, uh, like I said, I have a bag designer who's really who's really skillful and and. Um, and she sketches out products, maybe three or four versions of sort of um, the functionality and the aesthetics that we're looking for. Um, and directly from there, on the same day that it's been sketched out, we've had we've had we've sent it to customers and asked for or, or got feedback. Um, that's probably not on it, not on a, a, a whole email list basis, but specific people who we've talked to in the past who we think would have good feedback there. Um, yeah, so very, very quickly, as soon as possible. And, and, and I really think customers um, uh, love that. They love to be involved from day one. They love to see that the, the, the product iterate and build and potentially even have some of their thoughts and feedback go into that or at least explain why maybe that wasn't appropriate for this bag and really be engaged in the process there. That's sort of where small businesses can stand apart um, from, from your Nikes and your Adidas's. Got it. Now, you mentioned when you do have a new product that you want to launch, you told us that uh, one thing you used to do was to launch immediately, but nowadays you like to build some excitement and teasing a slow release to generate buzz around the new products. And um, yeah, nowadays you hold off on pushing it out right away and spend time explaining the product and its improvements to your subscribers and those closest to the company to build up this this hype, this, this excitement. So tell us more about that. Like how do you... Explain the timeline that when you have a product that is ready to go, or maybe when it's being developed, how are you building up excitement? 
Yeah, absolutely. So as you sort of mentioned, in the early days, we, we took a lot of pre-orders and a lot of that was for, for cash flow because we had to pay for the production run. Um, but now that we have a little bit more um, run rate and a bit more um, budget to, to sort of take our time, um, what we would do is we'd obviously develop the product. If the, Let's say the product is ready to go and we have a production run underway. We might We would probably spend two to three weeks building up a little bit of buzz and that's um, across um, social media, so across our Facebook and Instagram audiences uh, and across our email list. And so we'd, you know, maybe provide a few very close-ups of the bag, um, some key features uh, and then and then maybe a, a product image um that we that shows the actual the actual um the bag and what it's going to look like and then we go into the color ranges and we sort of talk about um we have an early access list so um it lets people sign up so that they can get access to the product two or three days before the general release so the most um excited people and the people who are uh, who most want to um get their hands on this product won't miss out because we have we've sold out of, of some releases in the past um and so that sort of um, scarcity and the build-up and the uh, VIP access, I guess it sort of all builds that excitement. Um, and then we have the general release three or four days after. So I guess the whole process is probably about a month long where we have some build-up, we have some early release and some f- product photography and then the general release where everyone's available or it's available for everyone. Got it. Makes sense. So you mentioned that you have like a VIP list of like the kind of biggest customers of yours. What has helped you? I mean, other than having great products, I think that's like, you know, a requirement. But what else have you done to help encourage repeat purchases? What do you think has what do you think has worked well to get people to come back and buy new products or buy more of the same products from you? Yeah, I think that's a really hard one for us um, in comparison to some other stores because it's a, a high value product. Uh, it's a bag. You don't necessarily need a new bag all the time. And I think one of the the main things that's helped us was is having a, a broad range. So, um, you know, backpacks, stuffles, meal prep, totes, um, luggage. So we can sort of fulfill that whole carry spectrum if someone likes the, the product. And, and you're right. I mean, having a, an amazing product is absolutely essential because, um, if, if if they like it and they need a new bag, that's they're coming straight back to us. Um, I think something that's worked really well is the use of, uh, and we can get into it a little bit later, but um, we use Clavio and there's a lot of email flows, and so we can do some segmentation based on the product they've purchased, and then we 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 um, explain all our other products to this customer. So let's say the customer has bought um, one of our original duffels, the emails. The customer will go into a segment that gets um, information about our backpacks, how our backpacks fit into the range, what they're about, the meal prep bags, insulated meal prep, maybe some recipes, so some they get some supplementary value there as well, um, and then talking about our, our luggage and, and how that might work on when, when we used to be able to travel. Um, and so I think some of those flows and really explaining to the customer the other products we have has improved our um our multiple purchases, um, but it's still a difficult one in in that space of bags. I think makes sense. So, Leah, let's talk about a bit about the the website. So, I'm assuming you've gone through redesigns of this website over the last decade or so. Can you talk a little bit about any changes that you've made or any experiments you run on the website that has led to more sales or better conversion rates? 
Yeah, absolutely. We've we've had many iterations. We started with WordPress, WooCommerce um, in the early days, uh, and about I would say four years ago, we moved to Shopify, which was um, which is the best thing we ever did. Um, it's, it's so easy and 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 reliable. And so, but since then, we've we've still gone through three three or so iterations as our product range increases. We've we've needed to make it easier to navigate things like that. In terms of real wins. I think one of the ones we've put on recently is a, is a great win, which is which is a, an upsell um, we've done based on meta tags on the product. So uh, we get to choose which products um, fit well with which other products. So, for example, if you go to the website, uh, I'll, do, I'll do it quickly now, um, and you click and you're on a backpack product and you press add to cart, a cross sell comes up that says, would you like a rain cover with this at X discount? And so that makes perfect sense with a with a backpack. If you if you're living in a wet environment, you'll have a rain cover and and various other cross sells that really make sense. And I, that's really helped us push up the average order value. Um, and that's a quite a recent thing. So uh, I'm sure there's a lot of other ones that we've done in the past. Um, that's worked quite well. Just actually one more, without wanting to go on for too long. Um, but uh, our making stop motion videos, which have been reasonably easy to do. I've got a really skillful graphic designer and, and, and marketer. Um, but making those really help to explain the product and bring it to the person. It's a you know a three dimensional stop motion video. You get a lot of information about products, and I think there there's tutorials on YouTube that anyone can do, and that really helps um, give sort of the feel for the product online. This is like a product page where you can see stop motion? All on the product page. Yeah. If you mm-hmm. scroll down through the images, mm-hmm. then we've got a couple of stop motions. We've got a 360-degree view of the bag, um, and then we've got a packing video that shows how much it packs. So, um, you know, the lo- for a high-value product, you can't give a customer too much information, I think. They've, they just can keep scrolling down the page and get more and more. So um, the higher value the product, the more information you should have for the customer. Makes sense. Now you mentioned a couple. You mentioned app already, but what other apps have you used to help power the website, help power the business? Yeah, we we love Clavio um, as an as an email marketing tool. Uh, with I think the the tightness of the integration with Shopify, the amount of information that we can pull through and segment customers based on. Uh, I think if you run a store, you have to have Clavio. Um, one we've used reasonably recently as well is called Privy, which is um. It's a way of capturing more email addresses um, and also SMS as well. So it's like a, it's a pop-up manager that has uh, a lot of customization tools there. Um, it plays nicely with Clavio as well, so the email addresses come through. Um, we've recently uh, started using the Spin to Win with Preview, which I've been very, very reluctant to use from sort of a balance between um, email capture and branding mm-hmm. and I'm not sure which way that went but um, we, we've really customized that so it works perfectly with our branding um, and the email capture rates are a second to none there we're, we're looking at maybe I think we're close to 15% capture rate of people who see that spin to win pop up so that's it's a no brainer we really have to do that um, we use we use gorgeous uh as our customer service tool, which really plays nice and pulls all the customer information in from from Shopify and from our Amazon store. Um, 
And one we've been playing with recently is called Locksmith, which allows you to put locks on certain parts of the website. So, for example, if you've got a new product, this sort of talking about the hype again, um, the early access people can get a code or a specific link and that lets them get to a new product that's not available to everyone else that's locked out um, for everyone who's not either a member or has special access. Um, and so that is one we've been playing with recently as well that's um, – that's that's I think got got some um, interesting uh, opportunities there. Awesome, yeah. So a good deal of experimentation going on on your website. So it's at KingKongApparel.com. And I'll leave you with this last question: What's been the biggest lesson that you've learned in the past year that has led to changes or or planned changes in the business? I think. Well, I mean, I think. Providing ourselves with a bit of a bigger buffer is probably um, an important lesson with with um, the whole COVID situation and the number of our, our customers who aren't able to train in gyms. Um, so I think I think yeah, uh, not not giving ourselves as much run rate as possible, um, understanding that not everything has to happen straight away. The opportunities will come slowly. Um, and just um, just being ready to 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 uh, take those opportunities when they come, and staying 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 alive in business is is uh, is almost a competitive advantage, especially in a situation like this. So mm-hmm. I think um, we'll we'll take a bit more care there. Awesome. Good. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience and story, Stefan. Thanks so much for having me, Felix. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.